Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. We've managed to track down John Bell, who's a great trainer and an awesome racing man. Today they're racing at New Plymouth. The track will be nice and firm. A dead four at the moment. That was the reading from this morning. Good morning to you, John. Hey, good morning. Uh, it was a hell of an introduction, son, uh, with, the, with the famous bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy on. Easy on, John. It's a good time of year for racing. Everyone's feeling nice and festive. You enjoying your Christmas week so far? Yeah, it's um, pretty busy trying to sort out, uh, you know, where we're going with racing, with the horses and, uh, you know, sorting out staff to uh, give them time with families and so on over the festive season. So a uh, fair bit of organising to be done, but uh, it sort of all pans out in the end and everybody's happy. You're off to New Plymouth today. You give the club a bit of support, don't you, John? You like racing around there? Well, they're good people, you know. They make you welcome and uh, they've always got to... You know, sort of come and have something to eat or whatever. Um, the track I find is always uh, uh, quite passive towards my horses. They do quite well there. So, um, and to be fair too, uh, if there's traffic going to Auckland, we can get to New Plymouth quicker than we get to Avondale. <laughs> what I liked about that, John, is they feed you, mate. They feed you when you go to that racetrack. That's most. That's important. Oh, yeah, no, they're very generous. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they're good people, and uh, it's well run. You know, you've got. Uh, some uh, uh, identities, racing identities down there with uh, uh, some uh, guys that have been in the industry for many, many years, and um, they uh, uh, they love seeing you know outside people. So have you been uh, up, have you been up to the Ponderosa? Have you been up to the Ponderosa at Alan Sharks up there? We look at the, we've got that beautiful view of the mountain. You've been up there and had a couple of beers? No, well actually, no, well actually I haven't. Uh, I haven't been there. Uh, we usually. Saddle up and get out of Dodge real quick after the races, you know, like today. I think the last one's around about 7.30 or something, so I'm usually in bed by then, so we'll be travelling home uh, <laughs> uh, in the dark. Yeah, that's right. Twilight <laughs> meeting. No, it should be good. There'll be some people on track wanting to have a couple of beers, and they'll want winners, John. And I reckon you've got a pretty nice team today. Tell us about your Vatimos filly, O de V. Uh, run a couple of nice races. Can she break through? Yeah, that's uh, if you can hear that beeping, that's Leon Casey from Pincaro uh, uh, ringing in. But uh, Udavi's a Pincaro horse. 
lovely pedigree. Um, you know, she ran second to uh, one of Tony Pike's, uh, I think it was Scribe or something like that, an mm -hmm. absolute monster. And in the photo finish, you couldn't even see her. You know, she, uh, most guys say, ah, oh, where's its mother? You know, it's a little wee thing, but boy, oh boy, can it run. So, you know, she's uh, got a pull on the weight with Joe Cameroon on, so, uh, and a handy gait. So she, um, you know, she's got uh, a turn of foot, so she should be somewhere about. And Palm Springs, mate, you like, you like the look of that today as well? Yeah, well, she's very strong. She's as wide as she is high, you know. She's very, very muscular. And, but she's an outside gate, which is number eight. There's only eight in it, I think. So, uh, And with Joe Cameron's two-kilo pull on the weight, you know, we, um, uh, you know, brings her into a competitive position, really. Uh, the only thing that got her, Craig Grules rode her in the last start down there, and he uh, just at the last little bit, he came and said, no, the weight got us. Uh, that was all, you know. So... Uh, she had to carry, uh, uh, you know, the big weight, but uh, with, the, with the pull on the weight, uh, yeah, she's um, she should run a nice race. Your team's been going pretty consistent of late, John. But you'd be after a winner. What's your best chance to hit the post first today? Do you think? Oh, both of those, Felice. Well, me, you know, Palm Springs, you know, to be. Yeah. All right. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Just maybe a little, uh, have a little eat bob each way or a little place multi to the two of them, back them straight up as well. And anything over the, the warmer months that you've got, you're really excited to get to the races? Uh, yes, we've got a horse that uh, is very, very talented and uh, he's, he's just a boy. He's four years old. He's a really um, very immature horse, a horse called Hot Salsa uh, by Tavistock. And he. Um, He's very, very talented, even to the extent that he, um, you know, if we look after him and so forth, uh, he, uh, well, which we will do, he could even end up another Julius, you know. Oh, easy, mm. easy. Can't be saying that stuff around me, John. I'll get too hot under the collar. Where, where, would, you, where would you hope Hot Salsa would turn up? He's uh, race six uh, tomorrow at uh, Matter Matter. Or I've got a nom in for the $60,000, uh, $60 grand, I think it is, for uh, the uh, 641400 uh, at Auckland. So, uh, but uh, you know, as Bart Cummings said, you know, keep yourself in good company and your horse in the worst. So we might just take that option and uh, give him some confidence because he's, he's a, a very immature horse. And, you know, to match him up against uh, the, the mob in Auckland, we... Uh, sort of steering more towards tomorrow. Well, you've got a good barrier three. You've got Grillsy booked. The form is good. Get him some back-to-back -back wins. Pad those stats, John. Good luck today, mate. And tomorrow with Hot Salsa, we'll be following with interest. There's plenty of domestic cricket we'll get into tomorrow with the Super Smash getting stuck in. But, I mean, I guess the eyeballs for a lot of people, will be on the ashes. Andrew Miller is the UK editor for, talk, uh, for ESPN Crick Info. Uh, he's across this stuff like nobody else, really. And up in the UK, I would love to know from Andrew, geez, how many violins are out and is there a chance? Those are my two first questions. This might be a very short interview, Andrew. Good morning to you, buddy. Good morning, mate. How are you doing? I'm good. Well, give me the prognosis and be as blunt as you can, then we'll work backwards. We are absolutely appalling. Um, I've, I've never, ever, I've never known an England team quite this, quite this hopeless. To be honest, I mean, I've watched England a lot, and I've, you know, I was out there in two thousand six, seven for for that whitewash. I watched the the two thousand ten victory, the the, the whitewash in twenty thirteen, the four nil in twenty seventeen. Uh, this is worse than than those previous tours. We've lost, 
nine nine out of ten in our previous two tours, and this is actually a worse team. So you're, dr- you say you're drinking summer. you're drinking plenty of beer and having a good time then. <laughs> well, for, fortunately, my my wife uh, reviews gin for a living, so, um, so I've, I've got I've actually got a gin plug in my hand, so, so I'm doing all right. That's perfect for a depressed English cricket. Ginadingding dot com, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> gee, he goes good. Two minutes, and he's got a plug in for his wife's company. Um, don't mind that from you, Andrew. Look, it, it's uh, look, as what are we innocent bystanders in this? We we can't really stand either of them. But we would always prefer the English get up. I mean, the Australians, the arrogance you can smell across the ditch. Uh, and unfortunately, this from the selections to the actual technical capabilities of this team, you're right. That's shocking. Why are they so bad? What's gone wrong? God, how long we got? Um, so, well, I mean, look, realistically, England made a very, very conscious decision uh, about six years ago, as of course you guys know better than anyone, because obviously we borrowed your technique for white ball cricket. Brendan McCullum and Owen Morgan got their heads together. Owen Morgan basically picked his brain and says, what are you doing right in white ball cricket? How can we do this better? England basically threw everything they got at white ball cricket, won the World Cup or, or drew the World Cup or however you want to phrase <laughs> it, but emerged with the trophy. Easy. And um, essentially in the process of, of getting it right and incredibly well, you know, the, the way that England have gone about white ball cricket in the past six years is amazing. And nobody can complain with the returns on that front, except in so doing, they basically left the test cricket to go to seed. They've left their county cricket to go to seed. Um, all of the, the the prime months of the English summer are now devoted to white ball cricket. So none of the best players get to play at the best time of the year. Obviously, you know, UK summer is pretty terrible. So you basically need to be playing in, in July and August to get good pitches to prepare for, for test tours like Australia. Um, we don't get that at the moment. So we've got guys who are, who could be brilliant, you know, Ollie Pope could be, a, could be the next Joe Root. He's, he's that good. But he's just, he's just regressed, frankly. He's not had the opportunity to become the hardened test cricketer that he needs to be to front up in a, in a tour like this. Uh, and, you know, poor Joe Root, he's trying to carry it all on his own back. Um, ben Stokes has come back heroically, but, I mean, he's completely, uh, been out, completely out of the game for six months and, uh, you know, he's not, he's, he's, he's not match fit. It's basically Root or bust. And if, if Root is bust, we're bust. And yeah. even if he does well, we're bust. What a headline, Root or bust. I like that. They, what, what are they going to print, print <laughs> that up there in the mirror? Yeah, it's a, it's a different meaning down there. <laughs> hey, um, so um, look, I've, I've been uh, played at Headley and watched a, watched a couple of the English test matches up there. You still wouldn't write them off, seriously. Even at two, at two zip, you still wouldn't write them off? Or you were just saying, no chance? I'm saying no chance. I mean, the, the trouble is, I don't see England dominating any of these test matches in the way that Australia dominates. I mean, the closest test match that England have had in the past, I think I'm right in saying since 2013 in Australia, is an 120-run defeat. And that was at Adelaide in the last thing. Wow. I mean, they're getting, they're getting absolutely tonked. They lo- they've lost by 10 wickets and 9 wickets of Brisbane twice. They lose by innings left, right and centre. They just don't get close. And so the only way that England are going to win a test is if they somehow get close and steal it by, you know, by even by one wicket, which is what they did at Headingley not so long ago. You know, I just don't see a way that England are going to be in a position to boss it. They're not going to score 400, 500, 600 runs to, to, to really dominate in the way they did on that triumphant tour in, in 2010. And so they're going to have to hope that, you know, they can get to 300 maybe, and then Jimmy Anderson or, or Mark Wood hopefully, you know, comes in and rips through. And, and basically they've got to take 20 wickets cheaply and hope their batsmen can 
can scrape together enough runs to win it. Uh, that's the only tactic they've got, I think, to, to get a test out of this. And I can't see them getting more than one. And, you know, if you're being honest, right at this moment, I don't even see them getting one. Yeah, look, it's a pretty sombre picture, but you are right. As far as it, they need everything to go right. England needs everything to stack exactly. up. Win the toss, uh, the, the batsman scraper 300-odd together, then Jimmy Anderson bowls out of his skin. Have a listen to this, Andrew. We had Graham Swan on the show uh, with Baz and Izzy not long ago, and this is the prognosis he gave about what the English batting lineup was like. Honestly, <laughs> our top six wouldn't get in most county sides 10 years ago. Is he fair dinkum? Is that true? Would, is, it that, is it that bad? And he is being dramatic a little bit because obviously you do have a couple of very class batsmen. I think David Milan has showed that he's got more than enough to hang at this level. But the county scene in the UK going back a decade ago, the state of that to where it is now, is it a massive drop-off? I genuinely think it is. I mean, if you look at, well, Graham Swan is, is, is perfectly placed to, to, to form such judgments because, you know, he, he, he played in the county county game for about eight years before he got his recall to, or basically got his call up to test cricket. So he knows it better than anyone. Um, I mean, I look at uh, look at the record of, say, Joe Root. In fact, I, I wrote about this today. Is that Joe Root, basically, his record in Australia is of a battling toiler you know he's, he's the best player we've ever produced arguably or certainly best player of the last 20 years that england have ever produced he averages what 30, 39 mm. in three tours of australia he's not yet scored a century i mean ian bell who you know one of my favorite players uh, i think he's massively underrated but you know ian bell has a pretty average reputation among england cricketers as, as in you know didn't it wasn't quite the, the highest echelon we've ever produced he averaged 37 in australia with one century and eight eight fifties basically joe root has got the same record as ian bell in australia and this is our best player ever and if that's that's as good as we can produce at this moment and i think he's brought he's dragged down by the fact he's got no support you know the, the other day when him and milan were playing he was basically talking about it they're like we we can't make a mistake here we you know they've put on two good hundred partnerships in in consecutive tests, but they've known, each of them have known, if either of us gets out, this is it. Whereas, you know, back in the day, if, you know, if Bell and Strauss, say, had a partnership and you had KP to come, or if KP and Collingwood had a partnership, you know, that, you know, there'd be Freddie Flintoff or something, you know, there was a, there, there was a, there was a sense that there's someone else going to come up behind us who can, who can pick up the baton. Uh, right at the moment, Joe Root is the only bloke running, relay, running that relay. Uh, he's got David Milan, who's, who's a decent sidekick at the moment, but, the rest, you know, you just cannot rely on them. And if you can't rely on them, you mean it means you're second-guessing your own innings as it goes along. So the fact that Root has managed to get, what, 600, um, 1,600 runs this year at 60-odd is, is, is absolutely incredible. It, it, and even, even with that, he's been a part of a side that's lost eight of their last 11 tests. And can you credit that? I mean, he's, 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 he's in danger of becoming the, the leading run scorer in a calendar year ever. And he's probably going to be the most defeated player in the calendar year ever as well. It's it's quite quite a dichotomy. Mm, now that's an interesting state of where Test cricket's at, even with the WTC. You bring up those famous names of the the English batting order of years gone by, and then you think about the run machine that Al Cook was as well. When we had Swan Swanee on in that same chat, he said that there's this weird thing in English cricket that when you finish your playing days, you're not allowed to speak to the English cricketers. And I don't know if he was being literal on that, but there's no connection, there's no passing the torch or mentorship that goes on. Paul Collingwood's with the squad, of course. But 
is this this weird disconnect between the former great generations of English cricket and this team now that is crying out for help? Well, I, I, that's interesting. I, I don't know for certain about that. I do know it was the case not so long ago. I remember there was a famous instance um, a few years back where everyone was scared of Bob Willis. The late great Bob Willis said it had quite a quite a quite a uh, temper on him when it came to commentary, and everyone thought that the, you know he pammed it up a bit when it came to criticising the players. So all the players were a bit terrified of this scary monster Bob Willis. And so he took them all out for a drink one night and bought them all his favourite wines, and they all loved him. Thought, oh, you're great. And it sort of kind of, it, it broke the ice, and everyone was a bit more relaxed around him and realised that these guys who were in the commentary box aren't to have to get you. So if, if, if they put those walls up again, and I, that's the first I've heard of it, but it's an interesting notion. If they put those walls up again, and, and it's entirely plausible, given that COVID has kind of forced walls to go up anyway, you can't really interact outside of your bubble at the moment. Um, if that's the case, then yeah, I, I can completely understand how these players are sort of dying in a bunker a little bit at the moment and, and not getting the chance to, to pick brains. But, you know, again, I come back to Joe Root. I mean, you know, he, he's basically the last player to have, turned into a great player for England in, in seven, eight years. I mean, he, he learned from the greatest England team of recent times. He had KP in that dressing room. Alistair Cook, as you mentioned, Andrew Strauss was, I think Andrew Strauss had just retired before he made his debut, but he was thereabouts. He had Swanee was around. You know, these guys were, were passing on information to, these, to, to, to Joe Root as he was a rookie coming through. And now suddenly, who's left? I mean, Ben Stokes is there, who's, who's great, and, and Joe Root himself. But beyond that, there's, there's not really anyone else. Uh, Jimmy Anderson and, and Stuart Broad, I mean, they're slightly, slightly separate separate issues. And certainly, you know, with the greatest respect, they don't really help out at the batting front, which is where England's biggest problems are. Mm. Um, there's really, yeah, there, there, there is a clear disconnect between the sort of hierarchical lesson learning that, that happened down the years for English cricket and where we are now, as I mentioned Ollie Pope at the top, classic example, he could be brilliant. I mean, two years ago, he looked like he was the next, next great thing. And now you watch him hopping around against off spinners and you think, my God, mate, you know, this, is, this, this is not where you should be after 22 tests or whatever it is. And uh, you know, three years as an international player, you, you, you really ought to be fronting up by now. Well, everyone in New Zealand is wondering why you haven't mentioned the best player in your team and his name's Ben Stokes. There was a wee mention there. Well... How's I did it? mention him. I did mention him, but but I mean, he, I, I, poor, poor, poor Ben Stokes. I mean, it's, it's too easy to mention Ben Stokes. He's like, he's like, he's the the, the de facto miracle worker, isn't he? And poor bloke has been off off sick for for uh, six months and with a with a broken finger that he thought was never going to heal. So, you know, he's finding his way back into the team. But the trouble is, England lump everything on Ben Stokes. I mean, for you know, since 2019, um, you know, there was a period for a year thereafter that he was the best player in the world, without a shadow of a doubt. He was doing absolutely everything. He won England the, the Test Series in in um, South Africa, the Biosecure Series against West Indies and, and Pakistan. I mean, well, Pakistan he missed, but West Indies, he was immense. He, you know, he, he was scoring massive hundreds and bowling people out and doing everything. But this is the problem with England have got. They, they're basically in a situation where they are expecting their miracle-working players to work miracles every day. They've got to expect Joe Root to score 2,000 runs in a year to give him the chance. They've got to expect Ben Stokes to produce Headingley every time. They've got Jimmy Anderson to keep on bowling at, at his peak, age 40. You know, it's, it, it's not really... There's, there's, no, there's no progression going on here. OK, all right. Well, what, what, what do you think? Put your, put your um, crystal ball up in front of your eyes and gaze into it for us. For this Boxing Day test, which could be even more of a bloodbath if it goes wrong, as I say, and things don't line up for England... What can they do 
that they can control to play better? And is it selection base or is it tactics? What can you see them doing or changing? Well, Mark Wood comes back. Uh, Mark Wood is the one guy so far on this tour who has really rattled Australia. I mean, you know, watching David Warner flinching out of out of line in that the Brisbane test, it was it was it was a it was a hint of what could have been. And you know, England did have a plan long ago. I mean, Joffre Archer, uh, just before I came on air, I was dealing with the story that uh, he's got a, uh, another elbow operation just undergone. Mm. So you know, he's he, he's he's poor bugger. He's out, he's out of action until at least. Uh, next summer um but basically he got he got broken by overuse frankly i mean you know he's bowling 96 miles an hour in his 20th over in that debut test at, at lords by 44 overs in the test match 42 in mount monganui when you guys thrashed us by an innings um you know the, the way that in which england had treated him was, was you know he's a, he's a he's a new fast toy he can he can bowl 96 miles an hour Woo-hoo, let's, let's bowl him for eight overs in a row um not clever so England have, have, have misused their resources, but the one resource they've got left is Mark Wood. So they couldn't play him back-to-back tests for fear of breaking him again. You know, if they'd, they'd wrecked him at Adelaide and then not had him for the last three tests, then, then they'd be completely curtained. So he will come back, and he is England's best hope of, as I said, bowling Australia out, really getting under their skin, racking the cage, and, you know, maybe getting a, a 250 plays 300 sort of test match and give themselves a chance. Uh, beyond that, all they all they can do is just hope that Joe Root gets that elusive century, and that someone, probably Milan, maybe Rory Burns, maybe I don't know, Josh Butler, who knows, someone's going to stay with him long enough to to give England a chance. Uh, there, there's there's no there's no magic formula, unfortunately. Yeah, well, not standing on your stumps is probably an excellent start. Oh, what can't be well, like? It would, would help, wouldn't it? Like we are all honestly, we are we are pulling in New Zealand for a rally from the English, but it's hard to see. If you're an English cricket fan or you're just a cricket fan and you're sick of watching Australia uh, just dominate, maybe you need a gin at gin a ding ding. There's the plug uh, on Twitter. What what's your handle, Andrew? I mean, there's your wife's and this, uh, for a gin consultant. Don't mind the tag. Um, where, where are we going to find your work? Uh, I'm, I'm Miller underscore cricket. Miller yeah, underscore. I, 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 I generally found up at up at stupid o'clock in the morning in the UK um, ranting about uh, England being bowled out, which is um, standard. So uh, that's where <laughs> I'll be on Boxing Day night. Bring it on. <laughs> Good man. Really enjoyed your time. Appreciate it, mate. Nothing better than a self-deprecating English cricket fan. We'll catch up again sometime. He's a good mate of yours, Kempi, and he's been good enough to join us on the SCNZ Summer Breakfast this morning. Good morning, Andrew. How you doing, man? Good morning. How are you? Yeah, we're doing good. Bright and early over your way. Have you got up and checked the surf report yet? I'm just looking at it now, mate. There's no waves, so... I don't know what I'm going to do today. <laughs> good, good to hear, Joey. Get a box, mate, and go hop in the pool. Those, those oh, yeah. bring back memories. <laughs> hey, oh, mate, yeah. how's, how's things, mate? Do you um, obviously back in the coaching ranks up in Newcastle and join it being home? Definitely. Now, I, well, I moved to Sydney 2007 when I retired. So I've worked with numerous clubs, Manly, uh, the Roosters, Parramatta. So I just felt like it was the right time to go home. And mate, it's you now working with the other clubs who I've mentioned. It, I love doing it, um, but working back in Newcastle, I'm just so invested. I just so want the club and the town to have that success, which was there in the '90s and the early 2000s. Talking about those early days, Joey, just just what are your mem- well, like 
as a kid coming through, looking at the Knights, you know, and the the toughness of the team back in those early days um, to today, what, what what are your early memories of the of the club? Um, I know when I spoke to David Waits, who set up the club along with a few other people, he coached Stu Tempe, uh, David Waits, and he said when they came in in 1988, they, they recruited some older players. They went to New Zealand, recruited half a dozen Kiwi boys, yourself, Sam Stewart, our, our first captain. But he said they, they set up a junior base, a junior system, a junior coaching strategy where in 10 years they wanted to have 75% of local juniors. And coming through there, the education I got was just incredible as a halfback and how to play and and different philosophies and how halfbacks should play. Now, within 10 years, we won a comp, and I think 75% of those were local juniors. So the junior structure they put in place and the way they coached their juniors set up the club. Um, and some of those philosophies now are still used. Guys I coached back then, David Wade, you know, Alan Bell, Tempe, you know, these guys, I still talk to them often about different ways for me to coach the halves. And Bally, mate, is he still is he still on the pitch? And is that one of your main goals, uh, going back to Newcastle, setting up that prolific um, talent pathway that they've had, they they used to have in Newcastle? Well, for some reason, the last fifteen years we have not produced a halfback. Which, if anyone knows Newcastle and the Hunter region, rugby league is like a religion there, and so many juniors play. Um, the numbers are incredible, but we're not producing, um, you know, world-class quality players, but especially world-class halfbacks. Uh, the players are there; they've just been coached wrong. It's not, not, not only at Newcastle; it's right across the board. We're, we're coaching our junior kids to play like Jonathan Thurston did when he was thirty, or myself when I was thirty. But you got to coach them to build the foundations when they're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. You got to let them, you know, take risks and and use the ball and make errors because that's where you make, so you understand and and advance as a player. So just trying to tweak a few things there. Is that Joey because of the commercialisation and the rapid professionalisation of the sport? Like the area you've when you were kind of getting to your peak and then what you've seen in the years since up in Sydney Town, is that kind of professionalisation of the sport which happens so fast? Is there is that not? quite made it down towards more the outer regions at all? I think I think there's a, some major contributors. I think uh, junior coaches are, are really ambitious, which is okay, but they want success. Uh, they're coaching the kids at 15, 16 to play in this structured sort of play, which you know, out the back, the block sort of shape, you know, the, the real structured sort of play, which the Melbourne Storm really mastered in the late 2000s. But the game's gone away from that. The game's quickened up. The game's gone to back to what, what, it, what it was in the 90s. So you've got these young guys coming through who, who only have one string to their bow. They can only play one style of footy, which, um, you know, it's for me, it's criminal. And you watch some games and every team pretty much plays the same. You know, mm. that's trying to change that and want people in Newcastle to see a brand of footy which is unique to Newcastle. A robotic, I call it, 
um, mate. And I and I think one of the things that will help you ha- help you get uh, get it back to what it looked in the nineties is something that's close to your your heart and the changing face of the NRL, the Pacific uh, influence. Just tell us a little bit about that changing face of the influence, mate, and and what you're trying to do with with your your um, your passion and about coaching Samoa, hopefully in the World Cup. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm a huge supporter of the Pacific Island game. Uh, I, I think the Pacific Island players bring a flair and a unique style of play. That they're, they're huge men, as we know, really athletic, but huge men, and, and, and even the women's game, you can say. And the skill, uh, the skill of these players, but also the agility and the speed. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a byproduct of playing a lot of basketball when they're young, but they're light on their feet, they can use a ball in one hand. I suppose it helps when your hand's the size of a plate. <laughs> um, but myself and Matthew have spoke about it often, about you know helping out Samoa and coaching Samoa. We've seen the emergence of Tonga on the international stage. Um, and we just really love to get back and improve Samoa and like Tonga, regularly are beating Australia, New Zealand and England. And, you know, in rugby league in Australia, we've got State of Origin, which is just a whole other beast. But the international game is, is dropping off. We need the Pacific Island to really pick up. And I think we can we can help that. Um, Sonny Bill Williams has, you know, said he'd like to come on board in some way. So, you know, he's the dream team around. And, yeah. And... Big advantage for Samoa is they are a tier two nation. So players who play state of origin can go back and play for Samoa. So, you know, Jerome Luai, Junior Paul, Brian Toe, like the team on takeoff, I've sort of looked at loosely, it, it would beat Australia on a regular basis. So, you know, we'd like to do it. We've said, Don, we'll do it for nothing, just as, you know, a way of really giving back to the game that gave us everything. And then down the track, I would, I would love to see a team play at the Pacific uh, Islands, Pacific or whatever you call it. I, I just think it's a huge opportunity to grow the game, not only in big pockets of New Zealand, in Australia, where we have a big Pacific Island community, but to grow it over there in Samoa and Tonga in the islands, which you know, ultimately I think the NRL should look at. Joey, as a passionate Kiwis fan, you you know it's hard to not feel like um, we've kind of well, international rugby league's kind of been left behind. The resurgence with Jason Taumalolo and those boys getting back in a couple of years ago it gave it a shot in the arm. What's the argument to be made that you would be talking to the power brokers in the NRL and explaining that if we can get a, a successful and a fruitful international competition going up, the benefits would go through the NRL? What what are the arguments to be made for that? I don't really know. I haven't really spoke to anyone at the NRL. Look, the World Cup, which was going to be on this year or last month, it cancelled because of COVID. I understand it's going to be there next year. So we just need an opportunity to showcase how good the great the game can be on an international level. And, and for somewhere like New Zealand, where look, you're never going to compete with rugby union because it's such a huge sport, but we need younger players to get into the game and realise how much fun it is, how much space there is in rugby league compared to rugby union, you know, and you can show off that skill set I spoke about, Pacific Island players, to start playing rugby league but staying in rugby league. So that's the challenge. The challenge I don't see is 
right up the top on, you know, I see exactly. the base. We need to get more of these kids playing rugby league who are athletically gifted or are tough. But that's the challenge. Get them into playing the game early and keeping them in it. Exactly, mate. That's a you know, we're on the same page with that. Hey, just just moving on, you know, congratulations on um, becoming an immortal, mate. Your bronze statue up at Marathon Stadium. What do they call it these days? They don't call it Marathon, do they? Got got another name for it? But uh, I would not change it every year, mate. <laughs> <laughs> mate, if, if you had to name a New Zealand immortal to join you, who would that be? Um, look, it's, it's a really tough one to sort of. Look, I don't go back as far as Mark Graham, the guys who, older guys who, who I know talk about Mark Graham is, is an unbelievable player. And then you know, you've got Stacey Jones, Reuben is one. Look, ben, Benji's probably the one that stands out because he's inspired a whole generation of players. You know, my, my son jumps around like Benji and... I say, mate, you're not that quick. Be good. <laughs> you've got to play like someone else. Be good if you can jump around like Benji and play like you. He'd be a champion. Yeah, um, you know, these sort of players, you know, off the top of my head, I, these sort of players I'd, I'd sort of speak about. Stacey Rubin, Benji, Mark Graham, Tony Kemp. Oh, <laughs> yeah, mate, that'll get the that'll light the board up with <laughs> like a Christmas tree saying that. Hey, mate, without, without blowing smoke up your backside, we, we played reserve grade together. People are listening, and Tempe helped me out so much in my my young career. I was a nineteen or twenty. Could have helped me out a little bit more and slapped me around the head <laughs> when we used to go for a beer. But that's another story. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> You, you, uh, you, the way you mentored me, mate, I'll never forget. Oh, thanks, mate. No, it's always been a privilege, mate, to um, to call you my mate. Hey, um, also know you're a big punter, mate, and this is a this is a punning station. Oh, so, he's from the Hunter region. What are you, That's what are you following, country. mate? What do you what do you got? What do you got for the boys? Have you got something for the boys over the weekend? I haven't got anything actually. It's Christmas time, mate. I haven't really been punning. My mate Chris Lee's horse trainer in Newcastle, he said he's got a couple of really good young ones coming through that I'm not going to tell you because if <laughs> some people knock the price off, he'll never talk to me again. Yeah, Chris is doing super work with the Aussie Bloodstock team, isn't he, Joey? Mate, I'm, 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 due for a hol- I'm due for a holiday in New Zealand. I generally go to Raglan every year, but I haven't been able to get over it. It's killing me. So you're a big surfer, Kimpy's been telling me, obviously the ledge down there and have you been to it? Just talking about Samoa, have you been around the Pacific Islands on many surf strikes? Yeah, I've been to Samoa about uh, half a dozen times. Aganoa? To, uh, Savahi. I went to Savahi. Apollo, the other island. Yeah, I went to um, yeah, all, the, all the surf spots over there. I love it. It's one of the most special places. Um, I actually went over after they had the tsunami with Nigel Vungana and Roy Asatasi. We just went over there and Handed out some NRL gear, which was great. I got a really great connection with Samoa. I've been to Fiji about uh, probably a dozen times. Tahiti, very lucky. Mate, I asked the boys. I got a I got a young producing team here. Ask the boys what's the one question they want to know if you'd you'd paddle into um, Chopu, mate, twenty foot. What's that? They they the boys here. They they got a question. They want to know if you'd paddle into Chopu when it's twenty foot. No. No. See, I thought you might. I don't know. I just thought there might. Be, I thought the I thought there might be something in you that would just make you do it. No, nah, 
No, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe six foot, eight foot, not twenty foot. Have you, my, body's, my body's held together by staples and plasticine. Yeah, not a good idea. Not when you're that far out of the way from a hospital. What about cloud break? Have you ever been tempted? No, no, I've surfed cloud break a heap of times. Yeah, I've gone to Fiji, you know, I reckon a dozen times, even more. So I've surfed cloud break, uh, you know, eight to ten foot. Pretty pretty scary. Because, oh, yeah, man. you know, when you're there, there's a lot of water moving. The, the swells come from a long way away, so there's a lot of power in it. Let's just say, um, yeah, I test my immortality that day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mate, really, really good to talk to you. What, what, what are your chances this year? What are you? There's a question everyone obviously wants to know about is what your thoughts on the Warriors um, next year. But being on the coaching ranks, first of all, what are your chances up in Newcastle, mate? They're, they're obviously my team that I I support 100 percent before any other team. Um, if Caelan Ponga stays on the field. But, they can't be watching him at training. Oh, unbelievable. It's, it's mind-blowing, the talent of the show. And I think he's got a lot of improvement in him. So hopefully we see that. If we, you know, He plays a lot of a chunk of a game. I have no doubt. It'll be, it's a top-eight roster and a really good, strong forward pack. The Safidi Twins are their big boppers and really aggressive front rowers. So if they keep their core team on the field, good luck with injuries. I think they're a, a top-eight team. Um, the Warriors, I think, once again, will be around that sort of eighth, seventh position. There's usually four or five teams fighting it out for mm-hmm. there, for that position. I think the usual suspects are going to be up the top. Look, Penrith's going to be strong. Roosters will be strong, stronger this year with players coming back from injury. Um, yeah, I think the Melbourne Storm are always up there. So the usual suspects are right up the top, but... Generally, there's a smoky that comes out of the pack, so I'd love it to be Newcastle. Yeah, so would I, mate. And what, what, what's your plans for Christmas, Joe, wrapping up? What's your, what's your plans? You, you're home, obviously, loving it there. You're going to the beaches on Sunday. Is that still, still pumping on a Sunday afternoon, I, I guess? Um, what, are you, what are your plans over the next few days? Well, um, myself and Matthew are from Cessna, which is now our inland. And if, when the Johns family get together, you generally read about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and usually it's not myself and the brother, it's my sister. <laughs> she likes to drink more than us two, so that's saying something. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Well, have one for me, mate. <laughs> Actually, have have ten for me, mate. I, I can't wait to catch up. Next time you head down to Raglan, I'll grab my board and join you. Right on, mate. You take care. Good to hear your voice, Kempis. Yeah, you too, Joe. Dean Lonigan is on the show this morning. Great to have you phoning in, Dean. How you doing, man? Assuming that Tony Kemp is hosting this show and he's the lead man <laughs> on SEN in the morning. <laughs> hey, Dino, how are you, brother? You're sitting in the, you're sitting in the cafe in Ponsonby on picking. But well, very close. I'm actually down in the viaduct at my good mate Leon Malloy's place, uh, having a cup of tea with him. And I got to say, Kenty, it's about time you got on radio, and because uh, you are a talent in the media, number one. But number two, it is without doubt the world's greatest and easiest job. And <laughs> I know it's all about efficiency, and there's nothing better than turning up at six, leaving at nine or ten, and uh, mate, having a good time and getting paid to do it. Yeah, good start, mate. Sitting down with Leo Malloy. What are you two? What are you two sort of scheming about, mate? Well, mate, Leo is going. Or he's going to be mayor of Auckland at some stage. I love like that. We have a chat about that every now and then. So, uh, mate, if nothing else, Leo is a fantastically interesting character. 
And uh, he's been a good mate of mine for a very, very long time. So fingers crossed he gets to be in the mayoralty because I'll tell you what, he will liven things up in Auckland City. Dean, you should have seen his performance with the anti-vaxxers in the weekend. Gee, he was on fire. He's, he's the right man for the job as far as they come. Hey, uh, good to have you here this morning, mate, because this evening there's a scrap going on across the ditch. There's a few of them. Gallon's fighting again. Earlier this week we spoke to uh, Monty Beetham, who's up to his old tricks with Kevi Mialamu. A lot of these ex-athletes, these union and league players, they're looking at boxing a bit more seriously. And then across the world, this kind of celebrity or outsiders getting into the fight game, it's becoming more and more of a trend. You've been across this for decades now, really. Why do you think it's popped back up and the popularity's on the rise again? Um, it's a really interesting question. I think you know maybe the world's just catching up when it comes to pay-per-view events and working out that if you want to sell a fight, you need famous people. You don't necessarily need boxers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, guys like Jake Paul have worked out that they can make tens of millions of dollars from having a fight uh, and cashing in on their social media sort of um, expertise, which is what Jake Paul's been doing. Paul Gallon. Mate, uh, I put together a fight with my guy, Justice Hooney, who is probably the most outstanding heavyweight to come out of Australasia in the last God knows since when. Uh, and, and we did a percentage deal with Gallon, and he made well over seven figures for his fight with Justice Hooney. He had to take a severe beating to get it, but <laughs> mate, when that the money's on the table, he made, he made more in one fight than what he made probably in nearly his whole career in football. Yeah, I couldn't have been a happier supporter watching that too, watching Gallon getting beaten up. Um, <laughs> mate, yeah. it was a slow... It was a slow, painful beat I, I, I was, I was hoping they were 10-minute rounds, Dino. I was hoping they were 10-minute <laughs> rounds, mate. I've won four. I said, brother, you're coming from the circus fighting game into the hurting game, and there's a big, big difference. And prior to the fight, they were all sort of full of blush and blunder. And I said, brother, not only do we, uh, you've got to do this once, you should be doing it twice. And uh, there was probably close to $2 million on the table for him to do it the second time around. And, mate, he didn't want a bar of it for the simple fact it was just too hard. He took took a massive beat in and he didn't want to take again. So, But I've got to tell you, Paul Gallon is one of the best guys I've ever worked with, and he's an incredibly good family man, one of the hardest working men I've ever met. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure to work with him. So while I gave him quite a bit of grief during the promotion, it's fair to say he gave plenty back. Mate, he is a great guy. Yeah, good good bloke, good bloke. Anyone who gets beaten up is a good bloke. Hey, um, <laughs> I just read in between the lines, Monty, you know, Monty let a cat out of the bag saying that Leo's supporting him and Kevy. Mate, ran into Tammy Davis yesterday. He's looking fit, you know. I sort of wonder why he's looking really, really fit. And um, I'm a little bit worried, too, that you're hanging around New Zealand for a while, mate. Is there something going on? We're just trying to work out here. What's actually happening? <laughs> mate, there's, no, there's nothing going on. A lot it's of celebrities. The, Lonigan lads, the old Lonigan lads had his head down and bum up. We, um, after we did that fight with Gallon versus Hooney, um, we, we only just avoided lockdown in Sydney at that stage, and we, I decided to come home. Uh, been home since about July and uh, been very, very busy setting up a massive year in Australia. Maybe looking at doing a couple of events in New Zealand next year. And uh, who knows? Who knows what could happen, gentlemen? You just never know with the likes of uh, you know what goes on in the world of boxing and what goes on in the world of rugby league. It's always there's fun and games to be had. Do you think the New Zealand audience has the appetite for it like we do in Australia? You know, almost better than anyone, Dino. Two very different marketplaces. How hard is it to promote an event in New Zealand in 2021 or 2022? I've got to tell you, from a COVID point of view, virtually impossible. Yeah. The, the government rules over here have been nothing short of draconian, mm. over the top, and they've killed you know the events industry, the hospitality. I don't think going to that. Everyone knows what's been going on. In Australia, it's fascinating. You know, like um, the way the state system is set up over there, it's effectively six or seven different countries. 
So I'm, I'm literally looking at an event that I've got in February 4 in Queensland right now between Justin Tooney and Joe Goodall. And if I was to hold that exact same event in New South Wales, I can fly the guys in no problem coming from the States because they're both up there training at the moment. They come in with, at worst, three days quarantine. At best, you just walk through the, the, the immigration. Whereas if you go to Queensland, it's a 14-day quarantine in a state facility. So different states have different things, and it affects the way you put the events together. So um, you know, it's an interesting time. Australia's a lot easier to get events away. Uh, the state governments are far more supportive of event promoters and getting big events in there. Um, but on the flip side of the coin, New Zealand, it is so much easier to communicate to the whole country here. You know, in, in New Zealand, if you want to communicate to the whole country, it's about eight people. TV1, TV3, a couple of radio journos that come to, you know, the... the and Dean Lonergan. ...radio networks and then stuff. And here, that's about it. Six people. Pleasure having you on the show, mate. Whatever you're cooking up, we look forward to hearing about it in the future. Thanks for coming on and join, uh, joining Kempi and Talk myself. Talk soon, Dino. Mate, I appreciate you having me on, guys. Have a good one.